you can argue about the, on the spectrum about different biblical interpretations, but that there is clearly a role for men and women within the family and then, the, then by extension the, the household of God is, is almost impossible to dismiss without simply just dismissing the clear reading of Scripture. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Actually, before we get to how the guys are, let me say one more thing. In this episode, we use a few terms for which we realized, after the fact, it would have been good to give some working definitions. So I'm coming back in at this point and recording this little section after the fact. Complementarianism is the view that men and women are created with equal value and worth in the eyes of God, indeed in his very image, but that they have been given different but complementary roles in his creation, especially in the church and in the home. Most complementarians, for instance, though there is of course some variation, would hold that the husband holds an authority in the home that his wife does not, and that the role of elder in the church is reserved to called and qualified men. Egalitarianism is the view that men and women are created with equal value and worth in the eyes of God, indeed in his very image, and that there are no role differences intended either in the home or in the church. So under an egalitarian view, there are no authority differences between men and women. A woman can and should hold any position that a man can hold. So there you go. Understanding what we mean by those terms will help you understand our conversation. Now, let's see how Matt and JD are doing. Excellent. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Yeah, I'm actually upstairs in St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island. Spanish, the house. Spanish moss <laughs> visible outside the windows. You have a beautiful campus here, JD. Yeah, it's really, it's a great gift. It was, uh, um, you know, when we took the call down here, we thought, well, we had in fact lost the lawsuit. And so it was bittersweet and just walked around saying, you know, well, Lord, I guess you were just going to um, show us these things like the promised land and then not be able to enter. And then, um, but yeah, once we, once we were, the ruling was reversed and we were giving it back outright free and clear, it's just been amazing to, um, to see and think and consider what the possibilities are. So I'm very grateful. I'm glad you're here to see it. Yeah, it's been fun. So the Southern Baptist Convention is going to meet in a couple months, and the big consternation, the big news that is going on in the lead-up to this meeting is what, if anything, the convention is going to do with Saddleback Community Church, the enormous church in California. Um, I'm not sure if Rick Warren is still a senior pastor. I've been seeing clips of other people, a husband and wife who may be in charge. No, it's a new guy. Yes. Okay. It's Andy Wood. That's right, Wood. Um, but certainly Rick Warren's the one who started that church. His shadow looms large over it. Um, and the reason that Saddleback is an issue for the SBC is that they have female pastors on staff now. And that is... Um, contrary to the Baptist faith and message to which churches that are aligned with the SBC have to conform. And Rick Warren is doing interviews online um, about his reasoning for having ordained some female pastors at Saddleback. And it sounds like he's either going to try to convince 
the convention to change their views or take Saddleback out or make them throw him out? What do you guys, from the outsider's perspective, obviously none of us are in the SBC. Um, what do you guys see as um, what's sort of on the horizon for the SBC in this? Well, I mean, it's a huge reverse. If, if in fact the SBC reverses course and allows women pastors, that's a reversal of the great conservative resurgence that took place, um, I think, in the 80s, was it? Yeah, in the 80s. Uh, yeah, in the 80s, because the, that was uh, that had to do with with a strong stance against women pastors. And, and that, uh, that resurgence, which Al Mohler was a uh, major figure in, resulted in, I, I would say, a kind of a reformation of the, of the Southern Baptist Church so that you had a convention, so you had a, a, a resurgence of conservatism and and Orthodox Christianity within that within that organization. So this would um, this would be a reversal of that, and it does it does seem that those people those those Southern Baptists who are pushing for female pastors are also bringing along with them the whole truckload of quote unquote woke woke ideas and and theologies along or ideologies along with them. So. It seems like a lot of it, a lot is at stake. I don't. I mean, I'm. I'm. I, I know you guys. We talked about it a little bit before we went on air, but listening to Rick Warren describe the reasons for his change of mind to Russell Moore was kind of surprising. He 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 mentioned he mentioned Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He mentioned um, Jesus sending the women. To uh, from the tomb oh, to go Peter. tell the uh, yeah to go Peter. tell Peter and the disciples that he's risen um, as evidence that women should be pastors. Um, and you mentioned, I think, Nick Offair, that that's you know it's basically re a regurgitation of anti rights argument that yeah, well, hey, that these are the first apostles, the first apostles were women, they're the sent ones that Jesus Jesus sent with the message of his resurrection. You know, when you actually go to passages that have to deal with women with the office of presbyter or the office of overseer. You don't see that. Um, or even the office it. of apostle, which is right. Which is both a generic term, one who is sent, and the name of an office in the New Testament. So oh, but don't forget Junia, Nick. When N.T. Wright says that the women on Easter morning were the apostles to the apostles, that's a cute saying, but he's changing the definition of the word within the sentence in order to cheat the meaning. Yes, exactly. It's a it's a it's a bad argument, but it's typical though. It's it's if you if you can find a woman fulfilling a fun a function that might be one of those functions that we associate with the pastor, then that will be leapt upon by those pushing for this as oh look here's the biblical evidence here's why women can be pastors and they'll steer clear usually of those passages that actually ex list explicit qualifications um, for the pastoral role. You know, you can Google on YouTube um, Al Mohler when he was first, one of his first addresses as dean, as the newly minted dean. I think he was like 32 or 33. I mean, he looks he looks very young um, standing in the chapel, sort of answering, taking a Q&A. It's really it's really um, fascinating to watch because, you know, he was there was lines of students that were basically accusing him of all of the um, the litany of crimes that we now hear today, you know, misogyny and you know, he was a fundamentalist and we were going to wait you out and all this stuff. And he really definitely handles the questions, but it really, it, it did signal the a, a, a turn. I mean, there's documentaries on this um, that you can, you can Google uh, and find the, I forget what the, I forget what it was titled, but there's decided mark uh, and change as you, as you recognize Matt with this kind of the conservative resurgence. And it, it would be 
uh, an amazing arc of reversal if they if they go back on this in any way. I mean, it's going to be something quite remarkable to watch, I think. Right. It does seem like the arguments, the modern day arguments are untethered from exegesis. That's right. And well, mostly have to do with the result of sinful humans participating in what somebody, perhaps even they, think of as complementarianism when biblical complementarianism would reject all of the sinful outgrowths that are held up as reasons why this can't work. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental assumption that either is embraced or rejected is that there are there's purpose and design for men and women distinct from each other and which and so that distinction brings about both d- designed opportunities and limits in whatever capacity we could then discuss you know whether that was the limitation for men not being able to have children you know as we see being flaunted or at least attempted to be overthrown in our modern you know neo-pagan world by the pregnant people uh, movement you know everything from that to uh, we saw the birth pun not intended of the uh, abortion industry uh you know being rooted in the resentment uh, that women uh, unlike men were um saddled with this ability to have children, whereas men could, you know, sow their seeds and walk away unencumbered. And we have this this sort of desire to to overthrow or to undercut or to just sort of get rid of entirely any of these, what we would argue from a, an even natural law perspective, created distinctives between men and women. And so if you embrace those, well, then we have another whole conversation, which has a kind of a, a spectrum about you know where are those distinctions most clearly seen which ones should be um embraced and supported which ones are not as important all the way you know that's an interesting conversation but it's an entirely different one than any and all distinctions in any meaningful way um are simply cultural bound products of an anti-christian misogynistic worldview and that's that's really as far as i can tell the the great divide because I'm willing to have a conversation with someone who says, listen, you know, here's how I understand the created differences of men and women in the in the family, the church, and the home. And we might come to different conclusions on that. But at the very least, we'd still be working from the same set of assumptions that there are, in fact, some differences and some purpose and plan for um, the interrelationship between the genders. Um, but if you're coming to me saying that men and women are simply functional titles given to uh, people who perform certain roles, whether irrespective of the fact of what their actual biology says, well, then we're, we're talking about a different, we're, we're talking, we're, we're, we're not only talking cross purposes, we're having, we're having two totally different conversations. And that's what I see happening in a lot of these um, debates is that there's not even anyone who would allow for something that even remotely looked like a quote-unquote traditional gender role to be even part of a conversation about men and women, um, in which case you're having, then to your point, Nick, you've moved very far from the way the Bible talks about men and women, because you can argue about on the spectrum about different biblical interpretations, but that there is clearly a role for men and women within the family and then the, then by extension the the household of god is is almost impossible to to dismiss without simply just dismissing the clear reading of scripture i mean on the further and the far furthest side of the egalitarian argument is the idea that all inequality all 
all hierarchy is evil um, and, and, and inherently oppressive. So that you have people like Beth Arson Parr and Kegu Demay and, and uh, Sheila Gregor, like we were talking about last week, who would say that any any complementarian framework is going to be inherently abusive toward women, even if it's just the system is is going to produce that no matter what, no matter who's involved. Um, and and so you have this kind of a pragmatic argument against it based on based on the on the reality they say the evidence of abuse. Um, in fact, Sheila Gregor's book is based on a, 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 a survey of two, 20,000 women and their and their experiences in marriage. And one of her points is, or at least her first book, uh, The Great Sex Rescue, one of her points is that, well, women who, who are in complementarian settings are most likely not to have as much uh, sexual enjoyment as as women who are in egalitarian uh, egalitarian setting. So, and, and so therefore <laughs> clearly that's our measurement of truth. So you got, you have the really far, far left egalitarians making those kinds of pragmatic arguments and arguments based on the binary, the, the binary nature of, of power. Um, but in, in general, you have, when you were subjected to reading or listening to this book, um, did you, did they have examples of what this actual sort of survey looked like? I mean, I, I shuddered. Well, they would ask questions about, you know, how, how did, you know, they take a couple women actually and ask questions about, you know, how they, how their life, home, life at home is with their husbands. And then once they kind of identified whether, what the setting is like, they ask about their, their, their sexual enjoyment with their husband. And, you know, lo and behold, it turns out that, that homes, um, well, basically the argument is homes where people say they're complementarian but actually live more egalitarian lives, those women are fine. But but women who but, but people who are actually acting out and living out complementarian lives, um, well, clearly women don't feel like yeah. they're being able to express themselves, and so they're not having as much enjoyment in their sexual lives. That's, That's the, the one true Scotsman argument, which yeah, is yeah. that anytime you know the idea is that well, a true Scotsman loves whatever, and you say, well, this guy doesn't. You say, well, he's not a true Scotsman. It's so, a, yes. <laughs> so in the in the vernacular of egalitarianism and complementarianism, you say, well. All complementarianism is abusive. And say, well, this guy's not. And say, well, he's really enacting an egalitarian life in his home. He just says wrongly that he's complementarian. Exactly. A, That's it, how they argue. It's exactly. a total fallacy. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So you know, it's, it's kind of it's kind of difficult to argue against something like that. I mean, because because of because of that because of that fallacy has been being employed. Um, but secondly, because this uh, this uh, this idea of abuse is out there and so strong in our culture, like so strong in our um, in our day and time, that just using that word abuse or or using the word trauma, I've been you know I've been traumatized in this kind of a complementarian setting already puts those who are defending the biblical view on the on the defensive. But you know, prove you're not an abuser. Prove you're not. Prove you're not. Prove that your view isn't isn't one that leads to to harming women. When did you stop beating your wife? Kind of kind of accusation. Well, you see this, and you see these accusations. They're not just thinly veiled. I mean, you think of people like um, I'm thinking of Michael Foster. You know, if you follow him, he's a great Twitter follower. Um, but you know, he's often accused. You know, basically, people imply they're like, "I feel so sorry for your wife." You know, I feel so sorry for uh, you know, like make her blink twice. You know, to to we'll come rescue her. You know, and they 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 turn it around and they make you know light of it. But it's really you know, the ninth commandments really is what it's, you know, it's bearing false witness. I mean, it's being incredibly disingenuous and not actually, you know, taking into account people's, people's 
um, stated experiences of their life as quote unquote complementarians. You know, I mean, that's uh, that's uh, and again, that doesn't mean that I mean, we're not on a people aren't on a rampage to sort of eradicate people with different ideas about how their marriages should be set up. You know, but it's like when I do pre-marriage counseling, particularly with younger people, you know, I always say, tell me how these roles are going to work out. You know, I'm just interested to hear what they think. You know, who's something goes bump in the night. Who's getting up? You know, if the baby's crying, you know, do you have a rotation? Like, how how is this going to work out? Because you can have all these ideas about it, but fundamentally it's going to be answered one way or the other. And you should probably think about it a little bit before you get right in the middle of the thick of things, you know? And so I'm, I'm sorry that you had to read that book. <laughs> I'm grateful. <laughs> Thank you for taking it for us. <laughs> I listened to a, like a long podcast with it and that was about as much as I could handle uh, with that. Um, but I look forward to hearing more of your, your and Anne's witty banter on the whole subject. One more thing, and this kind of goes along with what you're saying that is, is important. You know, the only reason egalitarian egalitarianism exists as it does today is because of technology, because of uh, things like birth control and and modern appliances that make that have actually reduced the differences between the sexes as time goes on. So, so the, the Bible was written at a time when none of those things existed. So you had just a natural division of the sexes because of their natural bodies and their the, the ways they had had to interact with one another. Uh, so egalitarianism is built on a kind of an artificial basis of of technology. I think I think Carl Truman makes this point about feminism in general, but but egalitarianism in particular. Without the the industrial revolution, you don't have egalitarianism. Without the technological revolution, you don't have egalitarianism because human beings need to survive, and our bodies are fit to do different roles in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, somebody yeah, somebody right. needs to take care of the baby and somebody needs to go kill a bear like let's just flip a coin <laughs> and um no you know interestingly enough uh, well amy bird's book recovering from biblical and womanhood whatever that one that i forget the title but she makes an actually interesting point to that what you're describing matt is saying that when all of these technological advances came and all of a sudden you know women in particular didn't have to spend six hours doing laundry and you could have a microwave you know you didn't have to slave over a stove and all these things then she said that, that that moment for Christian women was lost because instead of replacing that that free time with sort of a new reinvigorated vision of what a technologically savvy Christian woman in the home would look like, it just became this sort of valoration of leisure. You know, so you had this um you had like the fifties and sixties housewives, for for lack of a better word, um, that were you know, just kind of, it was the soap operas. It was the, uh, I mean, she says all this, like that there was a real missed opportunity to question what does a a biblical woman uh, and man for that matter look like when freed from some of the time encumbrances of uh, pre-technological uh, life. And I think, you know, we're still in the process of thinking about that ourselves. You know, we've been freed from the fears of many of, you know, it's like that, um, What's that movie, A Million Ways to Die in the West? You know, it's like we've been freed from from all sorts of things that would have preoccupied um, men and women even a generation ago. And what are we doing with that free time? And what are we doing with that that freedom? You know, it was like, well, it looks like we're, we're betting on a lot of sports, smoking weed and playing a lot of video games. It's like, well, we may, as Christian people, be called to think of something, doing something better with our time. And I think to, to that extent, I thought the book was not a terrible book, but I thought that was one of the, the one of the key insights of of the entire like 50s, 60s, you know, father knows best generation 
uh, because that was, uh, um, you know, I think we're still having that conversation now, obviously. I wanted to ask you guys about a slightly different facet of the same subject, thinking about Rick Warren and his church and his relationship with the SBC. Obviously, our churches are not the same as SBC churches. We are ministers under authority. I don't know about you guys, but we in our diocese sign oaths of conformity every year. We renew them. That's not how the SBC works. But it's interesting, and I know that we've talked about this a little bit in other areas, but for Rick Warren to ordain women pastors at Saddleback and then come to the Southern Baptist Convention and try to argue for it, rather than trying to argue for it and then voting as they might to change the Baptist faith and message, and then doing the thing that you've successfully lobbied for, that seems more in order to me than just doing the thing and then trying to change the organization you're in to, after the fact, make what you did okay. I mean, what we obviously have vows that we've made to the structures in which we serve. It's not quite the same in the SBC, but certainly there has to be some honor to submit yourself to the church in which you serve, isn't there? I mean, we say that, but... How did how did women's ordination begin in the Episcopal Church? Well, they began, just did it. They just did it, right? They yeah. had, they they didn't argue for it or win any kind of win any kind of convention approval. They just did it, um, and that that tends to be how the left moves forward. They just they put facts in the ground and then and then challenge the church to either uh, kick them out or or accept them. And usually, well, not usually, but often conservatives and traditionalists are too cowardly to kick them out, which, which, is, which is what needs to happen. That's the flip side of cowardice. They're too nice. You know, they think it's nice, right. being gentlemanly right. or, or Christian to, um, to, yeah. you know, just I mean, so we're asking we're asking people who are have a, who have a who have an agenda to have a t- integrity, and you know, it's kind of like asking John Spong, hey, you know, you don't believe in the resurrection anymore. You're not sure there's a personal God. You don't you don't believe in the Trinity. You think the Bible is full of myths and fairy tales. Why don't you not become? Why don't you, why don't you tear in your collar and not be a bishop because you're supposed to be upholding the doctrine of the church? And Bishop Spong says, no. I mean, I'm I'm giving you I'm I'm a fighter for justice and truth here. So a why should I have voice. Being, a yeah. prophetic voice? Why should I give it? To, and I'm sure Rick Warren, although to I mean he doesn't believe all the things that John Spong believes, but but Rick Warren to a lesser extent is just doing the same kind of thing, but in a different setting. It's probably maybe easier, I guess, in the Southern Baptist Convention to do that. I mean, what are they going to do? Um, well, and Rick Warren can at least appeal, as he did at the last convention, I believe, to the number of Southern Baptist churches he has had a hand in hand in planting. I think he, he would say that he has the right yeah, to diocese. shape, to at least contribute to the shaping of the SBC as he might see fit. Yeah, I mean, he he he, he does effectively. Look, I mean, the, the Saddleback community is effectively a diocese he's like a bishop i mean this is the same thing with a lot of these mega churches who have that have different campuses camp i and <laughs> and, the, and the bishop is 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 videoed in every sunday or the, I'm sorry, right. the pastor is videoed in every sunday okay i know they don't i know they have a congregational polity but they don't you know they're not not they're still waiting for the hologram the hologram pastor right. instead of the uh right, right right you know i mean that's totally under that's totally um foreseen right. can't be that expensive but this, I mean, the order question is is interesting. What do you do in it? What do you do in a congregationalist setting like the Southern Baptist Convention? What gives a person or a church power? And like you, I think Nick, you're like alluding to numbers. I mean, that's a big that's a big 
part of it. I, I would hope that Anglicanism is a little more, the ACNA is a little more, is a little more immune to yeah, but a I don't think church. You would think it would be the opposite, though. Think you would so. think we'd be more more at risk of that because our parishes actually fund the diocese. So like when we were in the Episcopal Church, it often happened that the biblically Orthodox Episcopal Church in a particular the diocese was by far the healthiest and therefore supporting the diocese and budget at a very high level. So the liberal revisionist bishop was inclined to leave the Orthodox Church alone because he didn't want to risk whatever funds he was getting from them. Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically speaking, it seems like in the SBC, the convention isn't necessarily losing anything financially. They are losing something in the public eye. If Saddleback and all of their satellite churches say we're out, that obviously is a is a news story. But it seems like Anglican churches are at least theoretically even more at risk to be loath to discipline large influential churches. I guess I'm thinking about in the diocesan level, one bishop, one vote. You know, you, you have you're, you're at the the College of Bishops. A larger diocese doesn't necessarily have more power than a smaller diocese. Right. right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, I guess in the diocesan level, on the diocesan level, in, in, within parishes, yeah, you're absolutely right. A strong, uh, the numbers do do speak, and often they speak in terms of representation too. A larger church will have more delegates they can bring to the convention. So, but yeah, I think I. I think going back to your question, Nick, about the integrity of, you know, joining a church that has stated views, I mean, I think that has a lot of relevance for what we're trying to do in the ACNA, because if, and I know that our listener, well, maybe we had two, maybe they're divided on this um, <laughs> question, but, um, you know, if if in the ACNA we have this, um, it's been called dual integrities, but let's just say for lack of a better word, we certainly have dioceses that have differing opinions and and practice on the relative roles of men and women in particularly the um, the ordained order. So we have we we are in a church that has that. And so we all understand that. We joined up for it. We knew that was part of the part of the process for better or worse. Now there are people in our church who think that the people on the other side of that question are, immoral and not just wrong biblically, but in, in the case of the the sort of complementarians, it's been called, you know, misogynist. Like they actually think that colleagues within the church, including bishops, are are not just wrong biblically, but actually um actively perpetuating misogyny. And I don't see how that type of belief could could lead to anything other than ultimately some sort of division or some sort of um, degradation of whatever sort of Christian unity we were supposed to have. And that's what I fear happening. Not so much that I have to work with people that disagree with me on one way or the other, but that if the, if the, I mean, this is happening, if the disagreement is being framed now, not in question of, well, you know, I have a different biblical interpretation. And so it's going to work out differently in my uh, faith order and practice where it once was, whereas now the argument is, you know, you are, you're actually a misogynist, you know, or, oh, no, even of course, the flip side is you are actually a, a practicing, uh, you, you know, you're not a Christian if you, if you basically disagree. an Episcopalian. Yeah. And I think, again, I, I think that that's from the ACNA perspective. I've, I've been, we've talked about this a lot, but I've, in every, every context that I get to where this question comes up, 
I, I point out this impossibility that we are trying to hold on to, which is if the bishops themselves don't call out and and model, call out the 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 preachers and the, the pastors in their own diocese that are making these arguments on both sides, but then themselves model the actual compromise that they have given us to hold, well then we're we're not gonna make it. I mean we're not I mean it's not gonna I don't see how it's perpetuated because if if I legitimately thought that someone across the diocese for me, um, who was a rector, was not only in error but in grievous error, uh, so much so that their you know mortal soul was in peril. I'd have a hard time you know being in a in a diocesan convention with that person without sort of standing up and and saying it. I mean this this but this is what this is how the argument is headed. I'm not saying it's there now, but I'm trying to. I mean we're trying to bring the the disagreement to light and allow for the sides to be heard without immediately retreating to these um, sort of cultural sort of shibboleths that you, you're the, you are the with us or you're against us. I, I, I think it's there. Um, Scott McKnight's wife, who you know, regularly tweets out uh, things about complementarians being abusive, complementarian theology being inherently abusive. Scott McKnight himself, the canon theologian for C4SO, has, you know, he's he platforms KK Dumay and and Beth Allison Barr, who are pre who are the premier voices saying that complementarianism is abusive. So so if you're in the ACNA, which which con which constitutionally forbids women from being bishops, which is therefore constitutionally complementarian, you're saying the institution is abusive right. in, in, in necessarily, right? So why are you here? Well, the reason they're here is because they want to change it. They want to they want to overturn it, um, and and that's that's been the project of the CFRSO diocese from the beginning, and and that's what that's that's what that's where they'll go if they can. So I think you're right. I mean, I think if you, I think if you agree with that, if you think if you think complementarianism is inherently abusive, and that those who hold to it are abusers, then you need to leave the church, go somewhere else. Get, form your own denomination, form your own, or go to the Episcopal Church. The, the, the doors, the doors are always wide open in the Episcopal Church for people like you. Go on over there and and form your own. Maybe maybe they'll let you form your own diocese or keep your own kind of identity. That's fine. But but you, if you're pushing it in the ACNA, you're trying. You you are deciding that you are not going to be a peacemaker, quote unquote, with <laughs> with your commentary. Well, even outside of just deciding not to be a peacemaker, it seems like the ACNA constitution with its honoring of both of these views makes it impossible to say that complementarianism is by definition abusive in the same way that it makes it impossible to say that egalitarianism is necessarily abusive in its own way or heretical in its own way. We are we are well, I would say that radical. Would say the radical egalitarianism is not does not comport with the ACNA Constitution canons at all, because because as Matt pointed out of the uh, prohibition on women to the episcopacy, that there would then be seemingly a freedom to teach some sort of ramifications of that in the church and the home without without fear of repercussion, certainly on Twitter or otherwise. And yet we see that's that's precisely not the case. I mean, bishops. Um, bishops themselves are, you know, routinely castigated and denigrated on and from uh, online, either indirectly, I mean, not as directly by the actual uh, people, but I mean, uh, uh, ministers within ACNA. But you see 
Well, you have to look at no further than Tish Warren, you know, just not, she tried her best to be, you know, winsome and, and uh, heartfelt and, and all the things in the New York times. And yet you read the comments and invariably they get down to those, Oh, those are those homophobic misogynistic ACNA people because they don't allow women bishops. Doesn't she know that they don't even allow women bishops. Don't they know that, you know, gay people can't be married and all the other things. And it's like, well, yes, we do know that. And we join this for a reason. And if you're happy, we're happy to live with some disagreements. But if it's a constant debate, a constant ar- ar- uh, sort of argument about the foundational convictions that were wrought at the heart of our entire denomination, well, then you really, if you had any integrity, you should really question whether or not you should stay with there. You know, for instance, we've talked about this before, but if wherever you stand on the issue, if you, if every time you saw like a woman who ordained, uh, you know, wearing a collar, you like had a, uh, you know, an overwhelming urge to, to like scream and pull your hair out or something. Well, then, you know, you might consider a different denomination than the ACNA, you know, uh, th- that doesn't mean you have to agree with it. But like, if you can't literally can't abide in your soul, then, then, you know, we, we, we should talk. And I think that's where um, we just keep inviting people that if, if you had some, the people with integrity on both sides of this issue, if they could consider if they're being, if they're being honest then, then I think we would be all better off. I mean, I've been talking about this even as, uh, you know, like Trinity School for Ministry, I'm on the board, and my suggestion to them all the time has been teach both sides of this, like prepare people to go into a church that actually has these disagreements and to lead, you know, loving in the midst of disagreement, like actually embracing the compromise that we have been given and see how this works out, you know? I mean, see how the Lord honors the attempt to love across division um, and also perhaps changes people's minds one way or the other, you know, informs and it sort of educates people uh, as to the the good of the argument with the person that they they disagree, not simply the sort of cultural whitewash, I mean, the cultural um, broad brush of just, well, those people disagree with me are, you know, are the devil, you know, it's like those people are all misogynist, those people don't believe the Bible, those people, you know, aren't Christians. And this is, this is something that, I mean, I think, we're certainly trying to model in a way that um, that you know I don't think the SBC is going to model going back to Rick Warren because they have different stated fundamental convictions. But I still think that the the argumentation um, that is being brought up by Rick Warren does mirror a lot of the conversation that we hear going on in our in our own denomination. Yes. No, I mean, I, I, but I wonder, I mean, okay, just to play the devil's advocate. I mean, I do wonder how compatible this is. I mean, I, I don't. So even if you can, even if you consider the question a secondary one, not one that's that would put someone outside the faith, there's still some aspects of the argument that make the two sides incompatible. So, for example, on the on the egalitarian side, let's say that they take not the John Stott position we've talked about before, but the more radical position, which is that there's a kind of trajectory in Scripture where those who have not, who are under, within within hierarchies. Are gradually being brought to a, a equality, and and so therefore, not only are women going to one day be have have equal roles as men in every in every aspect of of their life, but but also you know though that argument applies to quote unquote sexual minorities. That 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 argument applies. The, the same people who are making that kind of radical egalitarian argument are also making the argument for LGBTQ full inclusion. So that 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 foundation for that argument is radically incompatible with all forms of complementarian arguments which which are grounded in scripture the scriptures having been, once been revealed 
you don't develop from that. You don't you take you take what God has said as as lasting as an, as eternal verities that can't be overturned. I don't see how those two those two ideas about the scriptures coexist within the same within the same church. I do see how maybe a, a church can coexist where there are some who take the John Stott position where you can ordain women to uh, to the priesthood, but they have to be under the headship of, an, of a male rector or something along those lines. I can see how that can coexist with a more strong complementarian position, but I don't see how the how the how the radical egalitarian position it comports with within within the church for long. And that's not I'm not saying that we need need to go in a um uh with the compromise right now. I'm just saying I think long term we're not looking at something that can hold together. Well I certainly don't think it holds together within the same church, like the same local church. I don't think there's any way you could have, you know, like two or three clergy on the same team somehow pulling together if they um had this fundamental disagreement. I think that it's going to be increasingly uh, well, it is uncomfortable, and I think that it's uh, increasingly so, but mainly increasingly inco- uncomfortable because the conversation isn't allowed to be held without immediate accusations of, um, well, I mean, about the implication that, you know, complementarians are all abusive. Like, when did you stop abusing? You know, when did you start stop beating your wife, Matt? You know, like, since, of course, that's the assumption. It's like, well, I refuse to enter, enter in, even enter into that conversation. You know, that's that's these are false premises. So what what I keep telling people is that it, if they thought it was a settled question, then they're not really paying attention. You know, the fact that we are polite and we're trying to get along and, you know, people at diocesan and conventions and perhaps even seminary um, uh, classmates, you know, per, most people didn't get into the ministry because they were con- they were looking for conflicts. You know, most of us are trying to, you know, actually are fairly conflict avoidant and want to make peace and all the things. But what that's done with respect to this question is it's pushed it so far underground that there there's it's festering. And, you know, and it's and if we don't if we don't bring it to light and if it's not addressed, like, for instance, if I, I would like a bishop to to speak out against anyone that was calling a complementarian a misogynist by default and say uh, you're no longer allowed to say that in public. That's a that's a bearing false witness and like that is that certainly we know complementarians that have been uh, sinners, but there's certainly it's not limited to, uh, you know, to people, quote unquote, complementarian. I mean, sin is equally meted out amongst amongst human beings. And so if you can point to specific instances about this when whoever, then we should talk. But to to denigrate an entire theological position uh, repeatedly and without even um, without any sense of um, uh, qualification or remorse is, well, that's not going to last. Like that's not going to allow us to continue this experiment that is the ACNA. So I think, I mean, that's where, you know, I haven't, I haven't been, I've been watching some of these walkabouts, um, these various um, bishop interviews and things, but, you know, to the extent that any of them even imply that to disagree with them, if they are quote unquote egalitarians, uh, if they imply that the converse position is misogynistic, you know, then I'd be like, if I were, well, Bishop Dobbs or Bishop Breedlove, any of these dioceses that are sort of more um, complementarian you know, I'd be the first one on the phone. Be like, excuse me? Like, I don't know how this guy made it through, but like, that is not uh, going to be in the college in, in any helpful way uh, with the rest of us here. Not to mention the whole REC, um, you know, jurisdiction, that, you know, that has stated convictions for a century or, or more on this. And so, you know, I, I have hope for the ACNA, but it's, um, you know, it's a hope in the shadow of the cross, as it were, is the name of our Linton uh, series. Um, and I, I think that, 
you know, to the extent that we can we can bring this these discussions to light and have them uh, model what an actual um, uh, Christian disagreement uh, would look like is is challenging. And I certainly haven't done it perfectly myself. I know that, but I endeavor to. But but I know that the the fear of doing it improperly is not as strong as the fear of not addressing it. Um, and I think that's what. Um, I'm going to keep, at least in whatever capacity I have, um, the conversation going um, and see how the Lord finally brings a resolution to it. We'll see what the character of the debate on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention is. One hopes and prays that it's basically a Bible study and that people bring the scriptures to bear and they vote based on their understanding of the scriptures rather than what I think we fear it will be, which is accusations thrown one way or another. We've all been in conventions like that too. The ACNA is not debating this point at this point. We are in this together and we pray as we have said for good faith interactions between all of us. We have run out of time though. Matt Kennedy has something to run off to. Uh, Thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. Our listener, we love you. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 